0: I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're The, the Trade, trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Hello, and thanks for listening to The Trade Guys. Today we're pleased to welcome Ambassador Daniel Moho, Ireland's Ambassador to the United States. Ambassador Mulhall was born in Waterford. He joined the Foreign Service in 1978 and has been ambassador to Malaysia, Germany, ambassador to London, and now since 2017, he's been the ambassador to the United States. Ambassador, welcome and thanks for joining us. It's great to talk to you as always.
1: Let's begin with a few questions. We were just talking before we began here. The ambassador is having a busy week. He's talking to us from New York, where he's with the prime minister who's speaking at the UN General Assembly. Then he has another visitor tomorrow. And then one of the reasons we've had him on this week is because the deputy prime minister, Leo Varadkar, is coming to Washington on Monday next week and is doing a public event at CSIS, which was a great honor for us. So maybe we can begin, uh, Ambassador. Just tell us a few words why uh, we, we know why the Prime Minister is here because of UNGA. But uh, tell us why the Deputy Prime Minister is coming. What's he going to do? What's he going to say while he's here?
2: The reason for um, Deputy Prime Minister's visit and the, the visit of our Foreign Minister in the coming days is that America is one of our most important, if not most important, external partner. Of course, we're members of the European Union, which is vitally important for us. It's the core of our of our foreign policies, our EU membership, but uh, America is an extremely important partner, both politically in terms of its support for the Good Friday Agreement and um, in coping with the consequences of Brexit, indeed. Just yesterday, uh, President Biden expressed his strong support for the Irish Accords and uh, his opposition to any uh, hard border on the island of Ireland. So, America is a very important partner politically when it comes to uh, influencing the situation in Northern Ireland in a positive way. And, of course, economically, our trade with the United States, our two way trade, is uh, somewhere up in the region of $150 billion. That's billion with a B. So, it is an extremely important partner. And, therefore, uh, while our people haven't been able to come here the last last uh, year and a half very much. Now that um, things have opened up again a little bit more and the UN uh, is meeting in person this uh, week, we have uh, three visitors in the space of a week, whereas the embassy hasn't hosted a visitor for... for more than a year. So um, this is a great return to -to face-to-face diplomacy. And I always say that diplomacy is a face-to-face business, although it can be done virtually. And we have had to do it over the last year and a half, largely in the virtual uh, sphere. But it's great to have visitors again um, who can engage face-to-face with their American counterparts.
0: Let's hope you're not out of practice. It's the most important part of our job in many days, so um, we're glad you're back to it. Now, Ireland is a very important trading partner of the United States, but also a destination for American investment. It's an astonishingly popular European headquarters, in particular, for U.S. firms. How's that been going? And uh, what would you what would you tell our listeners about the investment relationship of the United States and uh, its trends over the past few years?
2: In my estimation. Three factors have transformed the Irish economy over the last uh, 20-30 years. First is our EU membership. The second is the educational revolution we've gone through, which means now 60% of of Irish school leavers uh, complete university education. And then finally, the impact of U.S. foreign direct investment on Ireland, which goes back about 50 years or more, but it's intensified in the last 20 years, and it has brought about a genuine transformation of our economic circumstances. When we joined the European Union in 1973, we were by far the poorest and the least developed of the then nine-member European economic community. We're now one of the most developed of the 27-member European Union, and that transformation has been quite profound and has been a joy to behold for someone of my generation who remembers the Ireland of uh, the past, the, the island of the 60s and 70s, which wasn't a very uh, successful economy, wasn't a very prosperous place. And to see that transformation in my during the course of my career has been a wonderful and a very positive experience. So US companies, come to Ireland for a number of reasons. They can access a highly educated, English-speaking workforce. What's more, they can access workers from other parts of the European Union who can come freely and live and work in Ireland without any restriction. Uh, The government policies are very uh, business-friendly. We've had a succession of uh, centre-party governments really stretching back to the foundation of our state, and those governments have consistently tried to make Uh, the environment in Ireland uh, conducive to investment. US companies make significant profits in Ireland and they transfer those profits back to the United States to the benefit of the United States economy which is a good thing for for people here in this country. Uh, And finally of course we have a a taxation system which we think is fair and transparent and which allows companies to pay a tax at the rate of 1.5% but it allows them to innovate and develop their businesses in the way they've done in Ireland. Uh, And of course Membership of the European Union means they have access to a market of 450 million people across the European Union, the largest single market in the world. So those companies have have proven to themselves and to others that uh, Ireland is a very good place in which to do business. And that's why we continue to have a flow of investment into our country. Just uh, yesterday, AstraZeneca announced their first investment in Ireland. They're going to be employing 100 highly skilled people in a... Uh, Project in Ireland, which is designed to boost their uh, supply chain. So, I think that the example set by companies like Apple, Boston Scientific, and those who are early movers in Ireland, uh, Intel, Hacker, and so on, their their um, example has encouraged other companies to look at Ireland. And when they look at Ireland, they discover that we have a lot to offer, that we're probably the most attractive location in the European Union for U.S. companies looking for a base within the European single market.
1: In your comments, you you said the magic word. I'm reminded as as an old person of the old Groucho Marx show where Someone says the magic word, the duck comes down, and you get $100. We're not going to give you $100, but the magic word is tax. You alluded to the Irish tax rate, and that has become, as you know, a subject of controversy because of the OECD digital services tax agreement, which Ireland has so far not joined in. And we've noticed that a number of your political leaders, including the prime minister and the finance minister, and actually Mr. Varadkar in the last few days have said something about that, can you bring us up to date on what the Irish position is on on the DST and where you think that's going? First of
2: all, I I have to to explain that we are part of the negotiations uh, in the within the OECD on uh, a series. Of, well, there are two pillars to this negotiation, and one involves a tax on digital services, where we are on the same page as as most other countries uh, on that particular issue. It will be costly to Ireland from a Point of view of our exchequer, but we are willing to to um, to, to go along with those proposals which are uh, currently being considered within the OECD. The second pillar is where the uh, controversy arises, and that's the idea of a global minimum tax. And uh, the current proposal is a minimum a global minimum tax of at least fifteen percent, and we were not prepared uh, to sign up to that. But of course, we continue to negotiate. Uh, within the OECD, the negotiations are ongoing. Uh, there are further meetings due for next month. And we see we will see how the negotiation unfolds because, you know, these are complicated negotiations. I've been involved as a diplomat in uh, taxation issues within the European Union for, you know, more than 20 years now. And there's always been this sort of tax issue uh, on the horizon. And it's complicated because countries have very different attitudes and so on. Now, there's a, obviously a head of steam building up at the moment. Within the OECD, but let's see how the cookie crumbles, as uh, as Americans would say. But 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 clearly, we are committed to to our twelve and a half percent corporation tax rate. We believe that is it is a rate which which uh, which implies a fair degree of uh, tax competition, which we think is important because not every country is in exactly the same position. We're an island, after all, of the. Uh, coast of, of Europe. There's some some negativities of being an island because you're not as close to the main markets as you would be if you were slap bang in the middle of the European mainland. Uh, so there are there are. I mean, all over Europe, uh, countries have different geographical, uh, economic uh, situations, and therefore the idea of of having the same tax across the European Union, it seems to me to be a fallacy. And we believe that we that our rate uh, is a fair rate, that it's a, a rate that, that uh, allows for fair competition on taxation. But of course, as I said, we are part of a discussion within the OECD, which is moving forward. And, uh, you know, there's clearly, you know, some momentum there. And we will be um, looking to find uh, solutions that uh, work for, Big countries, small countries, countries at the heart of Europe, countries in the periphery, uh, and so forth. There are different countries with different circumstances, and they, need, and they all need to be accommodated within whatever structure is devised as a result of these uh, negotiations. So there's still some ground to be covered, and uh, we, uh, we will certainly be looking to ensure that for the future, Ireland is an attractive location uh, for U.S. foreign direct investment for many reasons, including Having a fair and transparent corporation tax system
1: isn't the real negotiation within the EU. I mean, the, the OECD is, you know, putting the final touches on the thing. But uh, as I recall, the EU needs unanimity to move forward on this, and uh, there are three countries that have, that have not yet uh, joined the consensus. One of which is you. How is that going when negotiating with your uh, the other twenty-four, if you will?
2: The negotiations are within the OECD because the United States is a, is a huge player in these negotiations. So it's, it's not fair to say that these negotiations are within the European Union. What is the case is that uh, the European Union is a, a treaty-based body where we agree to share sovereignty, pool sovereignty in areas defined by the treaty. And taxation is an area where unanimity is required. So when it comes to measures to be taken, or European laws to be devised, unanimity is required for issues to do with taxation, and we've always, uh, and for example, on the digital services tax, when that was first proposed there a few years ago, Ireland was one of the the key countries that uh, stood up against that proposal, and indeed, eventually formed an alliance with a number of other countries sufficiently strong to uh, convince the Commission that uh, there was no uh, future in that proposal. And that's why the issue has gone into the OECD. We've always said that that, uh, taxation issues have to be dealt with in a broader environment, not just in the European Union, because there are other countries in the world that we have to also get on board. And in particular, the United States, which is, after all, uh, still the world's leading economic power.
0: The impetus for resolving this in connection to the digital services tax is relatively new. The OECD work on tax is not new at all. I remember almost 15 or 20 years ago, in the private sector, with the OECD's project on what what they called unfair tax competition. I always wondered unfair to whom, but <laughs> be that as it may, this has been going on for a while. Do you see a resolution in the near future, uh, or how would you handicap the talks at this point?
2: The first thing to say is that. This is an ongoing process, as you say, and there have been a number of, of iterations of the OECD's work on uh, taxation. And we in Ireland have made multiple adjustments to our tax code in order to ensure that we are keeping pace with the best practice uh, internationally. And we are continuing to, to, you know, to work intensively on the taxation brief with our partners across the OECD and within the European Union in order to see if we can come up with an international uh, code uh, in this area, which is fair to everyone, including countries like Ireland, that uh, we believe uh, that our tax policy has had a very beneficial effect in enabling our economy to develop to the point that it has developed to. But as I always say to people, you cannot put the Irish success story down to a single factor. All stories have multiple strands that feed into them. And in the Irish case, my view is that the number one factor in the Irish equation is our investment in education, which at the time when it started back in the 60s was controversial because we were educating people uh, to emigrate. Now it so happens that today's economy uh, puts a premium on uh, having an educated workforce, and educated workforce gives you an advantage in terms of attracting high-quality foreign direct investment, and that's what we've done, and the tax system has been uh, a part of that, the fabric of what Ireland offers to foreign companies. But for me, the two key factors are the quality of our workforce and our access to European markets.
1: And for Americans, I think it's both of those factors. Uh, And also you speak the same language, more or less.
2: That is important because I always say to Americans, you go to Ireland, you can talk to your lawyer in your own language. You can read the laws. They're not written in Swahili. They're written in English. And actually, our laws are probably less complicated than yours are, if I might just suggest. Um, at least they're shorter anyway. I hear about 3,000 page uh, behemoths uh, coming out of Congress. And also, you know, you can, you know, the the, the kind of everyday language of Ireland is obviously English. And, and Americans feel very comfortable. They feel made very welcome. And, uh, and Irish people have adjusted very well to the the business culture that american companies operate within and uh, i think there's an understanding of the american business model in ireland that maybe doesn't exist everywhere in the world
1: well and you also have a large segment of our population that that has ancestors that came yep. from ireland in fact i'm i'm happy to tell you that uh, just yesterday i Heard from Ancestry.com with an updated uh, analysis of my DNA, and I can tell you I am now two percent Irish.
2: Congratulations and uh, well done. And uh, maybe if they keep investigating, they might discover even deeper wells of Irishes. I knew there was something about you I liked, and now I know what it was. I was I, I I recognize you as a as a kindred spirit, as a fellow countryman.
1: <laughs> So it's going up, and this allows me to join other sons and daughters of Ireland like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer uh, as sort of a, an honorary Irish person.
2: Well, I mean, I, mean I, I always say if you have a thimble full of Irish blood in you, you're Irish. <laughs>
0: you know, it's, but it is a wonderful part of the story here, if you look at it over the long term, is for generations, Ireland exported people to the United States. Now the United States is exporting capital to, to Ireland
2: and uh, I I think that's a that's a great sign. But also Ireland is now importing people because today the percentage of our population born outside of our state is higher than it is in America. Uh, We have 17 percent of our population now born outside of Ireland and most of those come from other European Union countries, particularly Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Romania, Bulgaria, but some come from further afield, and it has transformed our demography. And just uh, last week, our statistics office uh, announced that our population has exceeded 5 million for the first time since 1851. Obviously, we had a great famine of the 1840s, which reduced our population catastrophically, but we're now at least recovered to the point where we are back to where we were more or less in 1851.
1: Has the immigration become a political issue? Are, no. the, are the immigrants welcome in Ireland?
2: I mean, look, who knows what people individually uh, may think about uh, these things. But in the public square, as you say, in America, there's no politician of any standing. There's no political party that has tried to make an issue of immigration, that has tried to stir up fears in Ireland about the potential impact of immigration. So, so far, so good, I would say Irish people seem to be resistant to that strain of anti-immigrant sentiment that finds expression in so many countries these days.
1: We should learn from you.
2: I think it's because Irish people still in their heads, they think of Ireland as a nation of immigrants and they, they they know the story of the Irish being discriminated against when they went to other parts of the world in the past. And we don't want to make the same mistake in Ireland by treating our people from other countries in a negative way. So I think there's a resistance to sort of the blame the immigrant kind of uh, philosophy that uh, other countries have embraced, sadly.
0: Let's talk about Brexit, if, if we could, Mr. Ambassador. And mostly because, obviously, Britain's departure from the European Union created problems for for Ireland in a number of ways. And uh, they're still somewhat unresolved. At the same time, it appears that your merchandise trade with both the UK and Northern Ireland, are in pretty good shape. What should Americans know about the Brexit and and the relations between the UK and uh, trade relations with the UK and Ireland? And how how should they view this over the next several months?
2: The first thing to say is that from an economic and trade point of view, Brexit is not a good idea. Brexit is a political project. It uh, responds to um, certain... Attitudes that uh, have taken root in Britain, which have made them feel that membership of the European Union is not consistent with their national identity, which I think is a sad situation. And I I think a lot of British people don't agree with this. And uh, as you know, the majority in favour of Brexit was quite narrow, um, but it was a majority. So the British government have proceeded on that basis and and they're perfectly entitled to do that. But the economic consequences of Brexit are beginning to uh, be felt in Britain now. Uh, with various scarcities and shortages because the bottom line is that under the single markets, you had seamless trade. You had, it was like operating within the United States. It was seamless trade between the 28 countries when Britain was a member of the European Union. Now that Britain has left, even though there's a free trade agreement between the UK and the European Union, there are still procedures, regulations, to be paperwork and so on, bureaucracy to be gone through. And that, of course, as we all know, is a barrier to, to trade because um, the, the, um, these technical barriers to trade are, are always a problem everywhere in the world. And, and usually agreements try to deal with them, but it's very difficult to do so. Trade uh, Trading services, of course, is not covered by the free trade agreement. So across the board, there are a lot of problems now trade between the UK and the EU has has gone down overall, okay? Now, we don't know whether this is a temporary phenomenon, uh, adjustment uh, process, getting used to new arrangements or what, or whether this is a permanent feature. But remember that last week, the UK decided to postpone until next year the introduction of controls, of, of border controls on trade coming into Britain from the European Union. That tells, you, that tells its own story. That tells you that they know that these arrangements are going to impose a further burden on the British economy, and they want to avoid that, and they're trying to find ways of mitigating those problems. So Brexit economically makes no sense. The idea that you can compensate for losses in your near neighborhood by having trade agreements with far-flung countries around the world seems to me to be an illusion, but This is something we'll only be able to prove or otherwise in the fullness of time. In the short term, trade between my part of Ireland, between Ireland and Northern Ireland, has boomed. It's gone up significantly. Now, again, it could be partly the the effect of of, getting used to new arrangements and so on. But it looks to me from the figures that what's happened is that supply chains have adjusted to new circumstances and that... uh, Northern Irish companies are finding suppliers in Ireland or perhaps even other parts of Europe, and rather than Britain, uh, and that uh, that um, that Irish companies are finding it easier to export to Northern Ireland than to other parts other than to Britain. So it just may be that that this this effect of Brexit, this micro effect uh, in Ireland, is redirecting trade a little bit and you know reducing trade with 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 Britain from Ireland to Britain, but but increasing trade within the island of Ireland and that's a a good thing because obviously geographically we're very close together. I mean our economic relations on the island of Ireland are less intensive than they ought to be because of the political differences that kept us apart for so long and if this process leads to more north-south trade that can only be a good thing for my part of Ireland and indeed for Northern Ireland. Now of course there is political controversy uh, surrounding the arrangements that were agreed last year by the British government and the European Union to govern uh, the situation in Northern Ireland when it comes to uh, trade with the European Union and to maintain an open border on the island of Ireland. The British government committed to maintaining an open border on the island of Ireland in perpetuity, which is what we wanted, what the EU wanted. But in return for that, they had to agree to a set of of controls, not a border, but a set of controls on the Irish Sea so that goods coming across from Britain didn't Illegally go into the European Union circumventing the regulatory regime and the customs um, Union uh, provisions and uh, unfortunately uh, the British government has um, been unwilling so far to to implement those arrangements and is talking about uh, walking away from the agreement which of course would cause a major political problem uh, between the EU and the UK Um, our hope is that the two sides can find pragmatic solutions, because we're committed to this protocol. We think it's the only way of uh, ensuring an open border in the island of Ireland and giving Northern Ireland the advantage of having access to the European Union and also to the UK single market. But uh, we are flexible when it comes to implementation. If there are problems about how these controls are being managed, those can be smoothed out. We don't want to see anybody in Northern Ireland suffering. We don't want to see Northern Ireland businesses suffer. We want to see them thrive and prosper under these new arrangements at uh, the open border in the island of Ireland and full access to the European single market. So we're so we're, we're we're more than happy, and as is the European Union, to have the protocol implemented in a flexible way that minimizes disruptions for Northern Ireland business. But But the bottom line is that the protocol has to be adhered to. And it can't, be, it can't be scrapped or renegotiated. And that's where the current situation uh, rests. Um, I know yesterday, as I said at the beginning, President Biden expressed strong support for for the Irish Accords, which includes the Northern Ireland Protocol. And he also expressed a strong desire to maintain an open border on the island of Ireland, which is what we in Ireland uh, earnestly wish to do, and which is what the European Union is trying to do by bringing in this, this um Special arrangements to cover Northern Ireland.
0: Well, these things are always complicated, but uh, at least there's a glimmer of hope that traders in the north of, of your island are finding partners in the south, and vice versa. That's uh, uh, that's something
2: to, to to look forward to progress on. It is well, it is. I mean, look, geographically, as you know, as you know, geography drives trade. Who are America's two biggest trading partners? Mexico and Canada. They're not the biggest countries in the world. They're not the richest countries in the world in the case of Mexico, but they're close by, and that 's why they are biggest trading partners and The same is true for us. Uh, our trade with northern Ireland was was stunted for a long time by political differences that made Northern Ireland turn away to some degree from from the rest of Ireland and maybe made our people wary as well. During the troubles in Northern Ireland, there was maybe a limited amount of of contact. That's all changed in the last uh, 20 years. And this new arrangement with an open border on the island of Ireland, I think, provides a further incentive for trade to intensify. That has no constitutional significance. Northern Ireland remains politically and constitutionally part of the United Kingdom. It simply has a special status when it comes to its links with the rest of the European Union through Ireland. It's, Northern Ireland is not a member of the European Union, but it has special rights vis-a-vis the European Union because of its position on the island of Ireland.
0: Well, Mr. Basser, you've been very generous with your time. Bill, I'll leave to you for a concluding question if you have one.
1: Well, just a quick one. Um, the other thing that's, uh, that's come up just in the last few days is, is this uh, question about what's going to happen to the Trade and Technology Council. Meeting and whether or not it's going to be postponed, uh, I'm not sure. There's been a decision yet, but this is, seems to be uh, mostly in reaction to the U.S. announcement about an agreement with Australia, which the French have uh, taken exception to. What's your What's your sense of what's going to happen? As, I mean, this, this was a European initiative in the first place, the Trade and Technology uh, Council. I would think it's probably something that that. Uh, your government would support, since it's focused on, on a lot of technology where I think Ireland has some advantages. How do you think this is going to play out? Is this, going to, is this a short-term blip or is there going to be a, a long-term uh, difficulty here that we're going to have to deal with?
2: Transatlantic relations are, are vital to America and to the European Union, and they must be moved forward. And they have moved forward in recent times with the resolution, more or less, of the Airbus-Boeing dispute. With the freezing of uh, EU tariffs in in response to the aluminum and uh, and uh, steel tariffs imposed by the United States, so so on both those fronts progress has been made. The Trade Technology Council is a further effort to deal with issues that uh, we think can move the agenda forward. And I mean, my view is that the EU and the US have so many things in common that it makes no sense for us to squabble over. Uh, trade issues and therefore this council is an opportunity to for both sides to get together and to tease out some of these issues and to come up with solutions that would strengthen both of our economies both of our trading systems in in the wider world i mean the the timing of a meeting of the council is not really uh, something to get uh, worked up about that'll be worked out Uh, but i think the key thing is to understand that uh, for ireland's purposes from our point of view the point of view of the European Union developing further our trading and economic partnership with the United States is a huge priority, and it's one that will receive full attention from the European Union. Whether, whenever this Trade and Technology Council uh, meets, I, I, I don't, I'm not privy to to uh, discussions about timing or, or possible postponements. I just don't know about those, but I do know that there's a strong commitment on the part of all European Union countries to intensifying our relations with the United States and to putting the the tensions of the last few years well and truly behind us and moving forward together. Because remember, both the United States and the European Union now uh, live in a wider world where we no longer necessarily decide the rules of the game. So if we're going to protect our interests promote our values, uh, we're going to have to work together more, and recognize that the world has changed and that we need to change it too.
1: Well, that's a positive note to end on. Thank you for coming, Ambassador.
0: Scott, over to you. We really appreciate your time on this very busy week, and you're welcome back anytime, particularly now that you know that Bill is part Irish, you'd have a, a, a forum at your convenience. So thanks for joining us.
2: I want regular updates on ancestrycom um, with uh, reports on Bill's heritage. Thank you for talking you. to me. Thank you. Bye-bye.